This is Jeffrey. I'm so glad you're listening to our church podcast again. It's uh, it's a lot of fun doing what I do. I love preaching. I love that I get to just put my sermons on the internet and some people listen to it. It's just really neat. And uh, this last Sunday we returned back to ordinary time. The, uh, the season of the Christian Passover is over and summer is now firmly upon us. So... We are uh, we're just going through the Bible again, and I decided it was time to do Jude. It's a short book. thought we'd be able to do it quickly, and then the morning of, I decided we need to read First Enoch, which, of course, is not in the Bible. But it seems to have really impacted how a couple New Testament authors, including Jude, understood... Um, well, they essentially understood... I didn't say this in the sermon, but I'll say it here... They understood Jesus to be a new Enoch. So when you read Paul, it's very clear that Jesus is the new Adam, and he is, but also he is the new Enoch. But uh, if you only read what's in the Bible about Enoch, there's hardly anything there. So um, looking at some of these other ancient texts uh, helps us to understand what it means about Jesus and how they understood him in the early church. So anyway, I did something that a lot of pastors don't do. I actually read from First Enoch in worship, and um, I'm going to be doing it again this Sunday to fill out the picture more. But it's interesting. So I, I'm not going to tell you that it it's 100% what happened, or you have to put your trust in this. Uh, the Bible is the only book you have to put your trust in. However, to understand the Bible, sometimes it is helpful to understand some of the stuff outside of the Bible. So that's why I'm I'm lifting it up. Anyway, I hope you find it useful. I hope you find it uh, edifying. Otherwise, I wouldn't offer it. So um, enjoy, learn something, be encouraged, and um, join us again this Sunday as we continue forward with Jude. All right, blessings. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. All right, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Jude. Jude is the second last book of the Bible. It's one chapter. It's short. You would think we'd be able to cover it today. We didn't even make it halfway through in Delaware. Um, I'm going to do something today that most preachers don't do. I'm going to read to you out of a book that is not in the Bible, but was written at the same time as some of the books of the Bible because it helps us to understand Jude better. Now, I want to be very clear on the front end. I'm a sola scriptura guy. I think the Bible is uniquely authored by God in a way that is beyond correction for salvation. I think the only thing book needed for salvation is God's holy scriptures. Nothing outside of the scriptures needs to be known for salvation. Even so, I think it's helpful to know some things outside of the scriptures to better understand scripture. So there are some people that get all worked up about the Apocrypha. Those are the books written, ancient books written that kind of go alongside the Bible. I don't think they're evil, I just don't think they're necessary for salvation. But today we're going to be turning to the book of First Enoch to better understand Jude. And it's a weird book. I don't, you know what, I bet in America there's probably only ever been a hundred churches that's ever read from First Enoch in worship. 
we're going to be one of that hundred, and it's weird. So get ready. Uh, so we're going to start with Jude. We're going we're gonna to march through, and then, um, sorry, I should have given JC the text so you could at least see what I'm reading, but uh, you're going to have to use your brains today. So um, let's, let's open to Jude. Does anybody have the page number yet? What is it, Zachary? 1909 in the Red Bible. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. So there's, with most letters, uh, an opening introduction, who it's from, who it's to. Who it's from, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I'll remind you, we've talked about it before. The Greek for servant is doulos, and it literally means slave. He's saying, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm a brother of James. James the lesser, James the greater, we don't know. He doesn't say, but one was an apostle and one was a leader in the church who was a brother of Jesus. Who's it addressed to? To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Who is that? Should be us. It should be the church, the new covenant community. The Bible has many terms for it. This is to people who are following Jesus. Those who have been called, those who are loved in God, and those kept for Jesus Christ. Verse 2, mercy and peace and love be yours in abundance. Ah, oh, thanks, Jude. That's a nice thing to say. This is one of the last nice things he has to say. The rest of the book is bitter. Get ready. Verse 3, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. There are a couple key words there. One of them is contend. When you think about contend, what kind of imagery comes? When you talk about a contender. Opponent. opponent usually contenders I've heard in like boxing, fighting. And that's exactly the notion here is we are called to contend for what? For the faith. The faith of Jesus Christ. That's quite implicit and obvious. This same faith was entrusted to who? To us, the saints, contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Saints just means holy ones. And if you have God's Holy Spirit in you, you are a holy one. The Holy Spirit is supposed to be in the lives, of, in, the, in the bodies and the souls of all believers, conforming us to the image of Christ Jesus. That's what's going on. And we are the ones to whom the faith of Jesus Christ has been entrusted. And the question is, are we defending it? Are we contending for it, or are we letting it get trampled upon? The book of Jude is written about an eternal problem, which is the world wants to trample upon the eternal faith of Christ Jesus, and there are people who let it happen even though they believe in Christ Jesus. Why do people within the church, inside of the church, let the world trample on the faith of Christ Jesus? Let's, let's just spitball some ideas. Why is it that when people scorn Christ and his church, speak against Christ and the faith, uh, upend the teachings of Christ, why is it that Christians do not fight to defend the faith? We're non-confrontational. Would it be right to say that we're cowards? Jude affects me a certain way. I'm going to speak very plainly today. 
that we don't like conflict. We're kind of cowards when it comes to conflict. It's easier just to remain silent. There are some people who say things like, well, you know, God doesn't need me to defend him. God is all powerful. He's going to do what he does. He doesn't need our help at all. That's half true. God, of course, is all powerful. He doesn't need us for anything. Even so, do we want to be right with that God? Do we want to be instruments of that God's peace in the world? I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, even the worst dog barks at someone who attacks his master. God help me if I can't be better than the worst dog. If someone is attacking my Lord Jesus Christ and I don't say anything to defend him, am I really his? Ooh, Zachary, you're so mean. That's exactly right, though. I, what gives me the right to feel like Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior if I don't even defend him and the faith that he's given me? The clear purpose here is he says, I want you to contend for the faith that was entrusted to you. You know, uh, I forget all the movies in the 80s. It used to be a trope. Some parent entrusts their kid with the house while they're away and they have a house party and it all goes awry, right? That's essentially what's happened with the faith of Jesus Christ. He's given us to the, kings, to the, king, the keys to the kingdom, given us authority over all spirits and demons in this world, given us authority to heal, and yet we've used the authority and the time given us not to heal the world, not to reconcile the world, but to party with the world, to bless the world as it goes to hell. We have neglected the faith once and for all entrusted, brothers and sisters. Jude is written to get us to reclaim and contend for that faith. Verse 4. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. He's talking about in the church. There are people who've slipped into the church. Scripture foretold about them. And these are not good people. Let's go on. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Oh, this is a bad situation, isn't it? There are people in the church who have perverted God's grace into a license for immorality. And they are scorning Christ. Now, they would not in any church, ancient or modern, allow people into a church who openly said curses against Jesus. What he's saying here is their teachings, their way of life, are what uh, uh, deny Jesus Christ as sovereign and Lord. So what is it about their way of life that denies him? They do not acknowledge the threat of sin. And so that's why this is an eternal message. This is why it was given to us then at the very beginning of creation. Y'all remember who the original rebel was? Satan, the serpent. And he came to Eve and he said, did God really say X? He said, did God really say that, that you can't have from any of the trees here? And then she bites and she says, no, I, we can eat from all of the trees except for this one. He says, ah, oh, that one. This is how Satan works. Satan gets us to ask that starting question. Did God really say? Did God really say? Is sin really that much of a threat? Is it really so bad if I just give in this one time? That's how Satan works. And there are people within the church who will go, did God really say X, Y, or Z? Did God really say that we shouldn't eat shellfish, you know? Did God really say that we should behave this way with our money? Did God really say that we should behave this way in our bedrooms? 
You get people asking these questions and they sow that seed of doubt. And Jude is warning, there are people that have slipped in among you who use God's grace as a license for immorality. What is grace? The unmerited, undeserved, free gift of God. We can't earn it. it grace is everything under that banner. So salvation uh, uh, is, is the main thing he offers, but conviction, the presence and power of his Holy Spirit, the church, all these things are God's grace. And humans have a way of going, well, God's grace is more powerful than my sin, so I'm just going to sin, sin, sin. In Romans, Paul talked directly to that. He says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you remember his immediate answer to that? By no means. How on earth are you and I who have died to sin going to continue to give our lives as instruments of sin? That makes no sense. That dog don't hunt. That's what Jude is addressing here. He's saying there are people in the community of faith who are going, I'm just a sinner, but that's okay. God's grace is more powerful than my sin. I don't need to be worried at all. Yes, I still seem to be dead in my sins, but I've received Jesus. He's saying people like that, they deny our only sovereign and Lord. If your life is indifferent to sin, you're one of these bad guys. You should repent. Sin is something that should grieve our hearts. You remember what Jesus' name means? Yeah, Jesus' name, they pronounce it something like Yeshua. And Joseph got it. What did it mean? Savior. And he was named Savior, and the angel told us in the Gospel of Matthew, you shall name him Yeshua, Savior, because he shall save people from their sins. What do you want in Jesus if you don't want to be saved from your sins? The whole purpose of the Gospel, of the faith that was once entrusted to the saints, is to save you from your sins. And you mean to tell me you don't hate your sin? We got leaders in the church who don't hate their sin. We got leaders in the church who think it's a no-no to even talk about sin, guys. This is the confused era we live in. We got, people, we got pastors that won't talk about sin. They'll just say, oh, we made some bad decisions with good intentions. We just need to tweak a few things here and there. The Bible says flatly, no, there is sin. It will kill you. Stop it. Repent. Receive the Holy Spirit. This is the scriptural injunction. Let's go on. Verse 5. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who do not believe. So we've all read Exodus, hopefully. Exodus, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh. Moses is sent by God as a messenger to speak to Pharaoh, say, let my people go, and then Pharaoh won't let go. And then at, at God's hand, Moses brings Ten plagues, the final one being enough to break Pharaoh. He lets him go. He chases him down, has him cornered at the Red Sea. God divides the sea. The Israelites are led through, and then God destroys the army of Pharaoh as they uh, chase. God showed his glory, that he loved them. They were his elect, they were his chosen people. And yet, when Moses brought them to Mount Sinai, he went up there, and they got bored, and they said, we don't really know what happened to Moses. Let's make an idol and worship it and party. And then whenever Moses uh, was sent by God to come down, first off, he ground the idol up, put it in water, and made them all drink it. Then he called all those who were not partying to him, and he said, all right, we got to kill everybody now. And they got their swords on their hips, and they just walked through the crowd and slashed them all, killed thousands. And when I say them all, there, it really wasn't all of them. It was just thousands of them. It was a lot of them. And so what he's saying here is, remember that God loved and purchased and elected these people, but when they were faithless, he had no qualms about killing them. 
He had no qualms about punishing them for their sin. What, what Jude is doing here is he's identifying that we do this thing. We go, oh, God loves me. He wouldn't hurt me. Hey, parents, do you love your kids? Does that mean you never punish them? Now, you don't kill them. <laughs> we don't kill our kids. But just because you love somebody does not mean that you don't punish them. In fact, you punish them because you love them. And that's the kind of God we have. He loves passionately, but oh boy, is he a jealous God, and does he hate passionately. And he shows no compassion towards the wicked. What he does is, it's not that he cancels out his judgment or his power, it's that he shows us his love and his grace and shows us the way to walk in salvation so that we will not be subject to the penalty that our sin rightly brings upon us. We are sinners and we deserve God's punishment, every single one of us. But because of what Christ did on the cross, we don't have to suffer. The question is, do you want to suffer? And when you persist in sin, you are saying, yes, I want to suffer. On that last day, there will be a lot of people come and say, Lord, Lord, Jesus, let me into your kingdom. I want to be there. I did all these things for you. And he's going to say, I don't know you. You never did anything to show me that you wanted to know me. You seem to love your sin. You say with your lips that I'm Lord, Lord, but you don't believe in your heart that God raised me from the dead. Why am I talking about this? Do I just love hurting people? No. We cannot understand the amazing gift of grace until we understand the huge impact of sin. If anyone teaches you to shrug at sin, they are a messenger of the evil one. Doesn't matter if they have good intentions, sin will kill you. And you're not going to get that knowledge from the world. The world is not going to help you understand the threat of your sin. The Bible is going to give you that holy hatred of your sin. And that's what Jude has written for. He, he reminds us that even though the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, he later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains, for judgment at the great day. What is he talking about here? When did angels leave their positions, abandon their proper dwelling, and then when did God put them in darkness awaiting judgment for the last day? When did that happen? Where is that in the Bible? I'm hearing murmurs. The Old Testament, that is, I mean, yes, but the Old Testament's big. Huh? When Satan was banished, like in Job, I'm looking for I'm looking for a book of the Bible. There it is. Thank you, brother. All right, let's go to Genesis six. We're on page. Actually, we're going to start in Genesis five with Enoch. Remember, there was Adam, and Adam had kids, and his kids had kids. You go through a genealogy, and then you get to Jared, in verse eighteen. We're in chapter 5, verse 18. We're on page 8 of your Bibles. Look at verse 18. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jacob lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. 
It's saying he didn't die. He never died. It says God just took him. Just took him up. Has anyone ever read the story of Elijah the prophet, how he, uh, he knew that uh, this day God was going to take him up and there was a flaming chariot that came down and grabbed him in front of Elisha and several others? <laughs> it's crazy. And that's what happened in some fashion to Enoch. God just took him up and said, you're with me now. We don't hear about him anymore in the Bible. We hear about him in 1 Enoch, and it's tied to the, following, the story that happens in chapter 6. So let's look at chapter 6, verse 1. It's on the next page. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful. The sons of God are angels. Uh, that, that becomes clear from context clues. There's not multiple Jesuses around there. This is, these are angelic beings. They saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. This is not good. This is not good. Angels stick with angels. Humans stick with humans. You have an unholy intermixing here. Verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not contend with these humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children with them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. So these were giants, by the way, and we learned this from other stuff written back then. And they proliferated throughout the earth. And then this is why God chose to flood the earth. Yes, there was sin that was rife throughout humanity, but this sin came through this unholy alliance of angels and men whose hearts are corrupted in rebellion from God. That's why the flood was needed. But then the weird thing a lot of people don't know is not all of them were killed by the flood. There were still uh, giants in the land whenever the Israelites came uh, through the 40 years in the wilderness in the promised land. They send in spies and they go, they're giants here. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. And God used the Israelites to come in and wipe them out where the flood failed. So that's, that's one of the things undergirding all this in the Old Testament a lot of people have no idea about. But one of the reasons I speak with confidence about it is because of this book of First Enoch. So we're going to read five minutes of Enoch. And uh, we're going to pick up where we left off next week. So let's just spend five minutes in Enoch. I'm going to remind you this is not scripture. It's written about a scriptural story, and it was written before Jesus came in the flesh, probably by about 100, 200 years earlier. So I'm going to skip the first couple chapters. This is chapter 6. And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied in those days, were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said one to another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men. And beget us children. And Semjaza, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear you guys will not agree to do this deed. He didn't say you guys. I, I shouldn't have done that. I fear you will not indeed agree to this deed. And I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath and all bind ourselves by mutual imprecations not to abandon this plan but to do this thing. Then they swear all together and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And they were in all 200 who descended in the days of Jared on the top of Mount Hermon. And they called it Mount Hermon because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And then it names all of them, and I'm not going to name, name them. But Mount Hermon figures into the New Testament story as well. Many people are pretty sure that's the uh, place where Jesus uh, was glorified. You remember whenever he changed forms, the transfiguration? That was at the top of Mount Hermon where this ancient rebellion took place. He takes his fight to the gates of hell and it was revealed there for who he is. It's a crazy, 
amazing thing. If you want to know more about it, uh, this lady right here, Whitney, can tell you a lot more about it. She's done the reading. Um, but here, what's happening is this dynamic that humans do where we go, well, we got to break the rules, but if only one or two of us do it, it's going to be bad. Let's all do it, and they can't, they can't punish all of us. So these guys want to rebel against God. They want to go and get these earthly women wives. They're full of lust, and they want to act on that lust, and they say, well, if we all do it together, God can't punish all of us. And this is what Jude is referencing whenever he's saying, this is how God deals with rebellion. Do you think that God chooses not to punish them because they all did it? No. Spoiler alert. They're all in Tartarus now being tortured until the day of judgment where they will be tortured some more. It's going to be really bad for them. It already is really bad for them because you don't rebel against God. And this is one of the things that rebels in the church do today. They say, well, hey, he gave us the keys to the kingdom, so let's just stop talking about some of these scriptures. Let's go against some of these scriptures. Let's do what's right in our own eyes. And if we all rebel together, God's not going to condemn all of us. How's that going to work out for them? It's not going to work out well. Now, I'm all in favor of the American workers' rights movement and, and uh, organizing unions and, and doing all that. I think it, it did amazing things when they all stood together against huge corporate powers that were literally killing them sometimes. If you don't know that history, you really should. But that's not how it works with God. God is not a corrupt coal mine operator. God is the just Lord of the earth. And if all of us rebel against him, all of us will be excluded from the kingdom. He doesn't need us. We need him. And as high as these angels were in heaven, when they rebelled, he had no problem punishing them. Why on earth do we imagine that God's heart is so weak towards us that his justice will retreat? Uh, it just makes no sense. We are so narcissistic as a culture. Do not give in to that lie from the evil one. He'll try and convince you that if you just, hey, everybody else is doing it. I guess it must not be a big deal. I remember so many teachers told me, if, you, if everybody's walking off a cliff, are you going to do it too? Who heard that, from a, heard that from a teacher growing up? It's a basic common sense thing. And yet with religion, for some reason, everybody's like, well, nobody else seems to think being righteous is important, so I don't have to either. It makes no sense. Let's do one more chapter here. Uh, and all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go in unto them and to defile themselves with them, and they taught them charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants, and they became pregnant, and they bare great giants whose height was 3,000 3, L's, who consumed all the acquisitions of men, and when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind, and they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish, and to devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. Isn't this crazy? If you're, if you're zoned out right now, I don't understand you. I think this is crazy. We're going to go a little bit further. And Azazel, he's one of the rebellious angels, taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known to them the metals of the earth and the art of working with them and bracelets and ornaments and the use of antimony. Antimony was a, a, a light metal that you could rub on your skin and darken it. So they used it for the following thing and the beautifying of the eyelids. So makeup came from rebellious angels, just so you know. Um, the beautifying of eyelids and all kinds of costly stones and all coloring tinctures. And there arose much godlessness and they committed fornication and they were led astray and became corrupt in all their ways. Some Jaza, a rebellious angel, taught enchantments and root cuttings. 
Armoros, the resolving of enchantments. Barakijal taught astrology. Kokabel taught the constellations. Ezekiel, the knowledge of clouds. Arachiel, the signs of the earth. Shamsiel, the signs of the sun. And Sariel, the course of the moon. And as men perished, they cried, and their cry went up to heaven. So what this is going to say here in a second, but we're going to stop here, is that men's hearts were already inclined towards evil, and they were interested in these things, but these unholy angels came and just ex uh, accelerated the process. So that's why a lot of people are concerned about artificial intelligence now. Artificial intelligence is just accelerating the process that we've been on for thousands of years right now. And when you're operating from an evil heart, then whatever resource you tap into to do that is just going to make you that much worse. And that's why the Amish and so many communities just step back and say, we want nothing more to do with this anymore. It's clearly been used for evil. We're just not going to do it. Now, you know, I'm not with them because I'm up here using a tablet. We're using air conditioning, artificial light. But even so, we need to be aware these things can be a threat. And when the angels brought these things to us, technology, warfare, seductive arts, astrology, uh, horticulture, all these things can be used for evil and you could argue are inclined towards evil. We need to have a proper fear of these things. Now, I'm going to back off from that because this isn't scripture, right? So I'm not going to insist any of this you have to just agree with automatically. But consider that this might be the historical account of what happened and made the flood necessary. So next week when we get together, I'm going to remind you of these things. We're going to talk about where Enoch comes into this. Because, spoiler alert, Enoch is taken up by God to become a messenger to these angels as God condemns and punishes them. Enoch gets this wonderful prophetic gift. Um, and then we'll tie that back into Jude. I'd like to say we're going to be done with Jude next week, but I'm always wrong about this. So uh, go, home and, go home and go ahead and read Jude. You can read the whole thing in eight minutes. Seriously, read it. Come back next Sunday, and we'll dive back in together. Is that a deal?